Good morning. In uh, C.S. Lewis's final sermon, he said that no layman should presume to get onto a pulpit and instruct the community. At best, they are only comparing notes. So I say that because it is an honor for me to come across the street this morning and compare notes with you. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Several years ago, my mind was captured with a story. It was a young New Zealander who went by the name of Unigirl, who logged in for an auction. Now, this auction quickly captured media attention based upon what was for sale, her virginity, Unigirl said that her motivation for selling her virginity was to raise as much money as possible, as possible, as fast as possible, to pay for her education. She had over 30,000 views, over 1,200 offers were made, and the winning bid was a whopping $46,000 in New Zealand currency. When contacted by media outlets, the webmaster for the site says, the transaction has been completed. The transaction has been completed. Now, I find this particular example of commercial activity to be interesting because of the questions it raises. Specifically, what exactly is morally objectionable about the sale or the purchase of one's virginity? And it's interesting because if if you are a consequentialist where the rightness of an activity is bound up in the consequence that it produces, you might support the sale and the purchase. And if you are what we might describe as a rights-based liberal that valorizes consent as a primary moral necessity, you also might support the sale and the purchase. And of course, if you're only looking to the law, You would support this because the sale of sex in New Zealand is legal. Put differently, the common guidepost we seek to serve as a compass for moral action are not sufficient to condemn Unigirl's actions. And detached and isolated from a larger, more morally capacious story about reality, these guideposts suffer an impoverishment that limits our moral imagination. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to review a book by two authors, and the authors were making the case that market activity and commodification should have no boundaries. If you can do it for free, they said, you should be able to do it for money. The examples were common. You should be able to pay for sex. You should be able to pay for body parts, commercial surrogacy. They were even willing to marketize our democracy. One of the chapters was committed to the idea that we should be able to sell our votes. And somewhere in the middle of the book, they, they showed their philosophical cards because they said, after all, these practices are only culturally contingent and not written into the moral fabric of the universe. These practices can be commodified because, after all, they are not culturally contingent. They're only culturally contingent, I apologize. And they're not written into the moral fabric 
of the universe. Now, I ended my review and I said, you know, they're right. If (laughs) their story about reality is true. If the organizing story that they draw from is accurate, what is that story? It's the story of a naturalistic, random, mechanical world originating from what Bertrand Russell called an accidental collocation of atoms. It's the story where time is presented as a continuous stream of qualitatively meaningless sensations, as Robert Bella describes it. Charles Taylor talks about a terrible flatness that's associated with consumer identity in industry. Once Richard Dawkins was asked uh, if life was, in the language of Shakespeare's Macbeth, merely a tale told by an idiot. Is life simply short and noisy and meaningless? His answer, yes. At a cosmic level, it is. So we might imagine an economy and the economic agents therein that operate under the conditions of this story. Business, economic decisions, and directives will be distilled down to what works. It will be transactional. Humans become objects. They become instruments. They become units of input. It would be the kind of economy that would valorize Epicurean ideals, the maximization of pleasure, the minimization of pain. But what if another story is true? What if an alternative narrative is what governs our lives? What if our world is enchanted? Stanley Harvost, the theologian, had his own response to Macbeth's uh, pessimism, uh, life being a tale told by an idiot. Here's what he says. Christians believe that time has a narrative logic, which means that time is not just one thing after another. The story of creation is meant to remind us that all that exists lends witness to the glory of God, giving history a significance otherwise unavailable. Creation, redemption, and reconciliation are names that Christians believe constitute the basic plot line that makes history more than a tale told by an idiot. If this story is true, what are the implications for Christians within the commercial realm? Years ago, many years ago, I had a colleague. He was doing a Bible study with students on what it meant to be a Christian in the marketplace. I said, that's great. I said, what have you concluded? He said, well, you know, be punctual, be kind, be nice, be honest. Now, I think those things are Christian. Don't get me wrong. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking of a comment by Lee Camp who said, Jesus Christ did not die on the cross so that you could show up to work on time. I think there's more to be said. Again, if this alternative story is true, if we're created beings that inhabit a created order, if we reflect God's image upon our lives, if time does have a narrative logic and creation, redemption, and reconciliation constitute the basic plot line, if true, then... What are the implications for our participation in the economic order? How can our commercial activity honor God, serve others, and humanize 
ourselves? How can we re-subjectify the other? To see others not as instruments, but as persons. How can seeking the things that are above redefine our market imagination and redeploy our efforts within the economic realm? These are big questions. They're not exhaustible this morning, unfortunately. But allow me to humbly offer a few related thoughts regarding how people of faith exist within the commercial realm. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. The Christian story has something, I think, to tell us about satisfaction and ordinate affections, first and foremost. Now, if I had my druthers, all of our students, certainly at Asbury, would have a baseline uh, economic imagination or economic sensibilities. There are many insights to be gleaned from this. I will make that argument 100 times out of 100. Yet, one of the more questionable assumptions of the discipline links our preferences and our desires to our satisfaction, our welfare, and our well-being. Put differently, you might say that an economic agent is assumed to be made better off when they are given what they want, when their preferences are satisfied. One author says, economists are all for the satisfaction of desires, but as to the desires themselves, they remain fastidiously indifferent. Again, what if another story is true? What if we occupy the enchanted world? This is why Rodney Clapp says, for Christian spirituality, desire can never be considered apart from its object. A desire is known as good or evil only when we take account of what is desired, the object of desire. And we know that not all desires are created equal. Some desire Shakespeare. Others desire pornography. Some desire education. Others desire violent video games. Some in the marketplace seek to serve others. Some seek status. Some like the opera. Some like Duke basketball. John Wesley refers to what he calls an elegant epicurism. That which does not hurt the body, but does affect the soul. The things that we imbibe that corrupt and degrade and corrode us. This is why Augustine says that virtue is ordered love. Loving what is lovely, pursuing that which is worthy of our pursuit, desiring that which is truly desirable. Everything follows what we love. What we love, we become. My weight is my love, he says. And for Augustine, disordered love is also the essence of sin. And our ordered love, our ordinate affections, also has something to say about the satisfaction that we attempt to uh, uh, gain from our consumption. Put differently, the goods and services that bring pleasure may vary among the masses, yet if humans were designed by a deliberate designer, then what allows a human to flourish does not. This is why William Cavanaugh says, consumerism is not attachment to anything, it's disattachment from everything. Nothing satisfies. Only one desire does not come back void, and that is participation in the life of God. This is why Augustine said, you made us for yourself. You made us for you and restless are our hearts 
until they find their rest in thee. To summarize this, markets facilitate desires. They do it well. But what do we desire? And in our desiring, what are we becoming? What satisfies? Seek the things that are above where Christ is. A marketplace in an enchanted world also has something to say about our service to one another. Markets facilitate socially beneficial activities. If, if we have a penchant, as we should, to bend the universe in favor of our neighbor and the oppressed and the orphan, and the orphan widow, alien. Markets can do this. Business and industry can do this. The business mechanism mobilizes productive forces and distributes resources in a way consonant with this aim. But remember, motive matters. I think 1 Corinthians 10 is instructive here, where Paul is reflecting on what the the church of Corinth says, or rather the, the Corinthians at that time. All things are lawful. Yes, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful. Not all things edify. And he ends by saying, do all things to the glory of God. So where in our economic activity are we willing to exchange efficiency for an arrangement we would deem as being more equitable or ethical? How does our service, our hospitality, our creativity, our productivity, and the value that we offer edify the larger community? How does it glorify God? Dorothy Sayers has a wonderful little essay called Why Work? And in it, she talks about a carpenter and what claim can the church, what claim can religion legitimately make upon the life of this carpenter? She says the very first demand religion should make upon a carpenter is that they should make good tables. Don't insult God, she says, with bad carpentry. As a person that's made in the image of a productive and creative God, I shudder to think how often I have insulted God with my own shoddy productivity. How often I have insulted God with my own lack of creativity. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Let me end by giving a word about fitness as it relates to the commercial realm within an enchanted world. For John Wesley, true religion is right tempers toward God and toward man. But don't miss this. These tempers argued Wesley, will accompany us into the heavenly realm. I've long appreciated an illustration that I've given across the street uh, by Victor Shepard, professor and minister. He talks about going to a concert hall, and he says, if we pay money to go into the concert, we have the right to be at that concert. He said, but what if you were tone deaf? Regardless of your right to be at the concert, You would maybe find it boring or at worst, grating. You would want to leave. You would see this as a terrible waste of your time and certainly a terrible waste of your money. So on one level, there's an issue of your right to be at the concert. But on another level, the issue is your fitness to be at the concert. Your musicality is what makes you fit for the concert. Justification, says Shepard is our right to heaven. Sanctification is our fitness for it. 
Wesley says, without the righteousness of Christ, we could have no claim to glory, but without holiness, we have no fitness for it. It's why Wesley thought that our money and our economic activity, these things were a training ground for eternity. You see, holiness is not simply a requirement for heaven. It is the environment of heaven. Holiness holiness is not a requirement for heaven. It's the environment of heaven. It's not a condition. It's the condition. And our economic activity and the liturgies that exist within that will make us fit for an eternity. But the nature of that eternity will rise proportionate to the nature of that activity. Are our desires, our work, our relationship, are these things cultivating heavenly sensibilities? Will they make heaven familiar? Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Let me conclude in 2001, Time Magazine, uh, in, in a list of superlatives, mentioned Stanley Haravos, who I quoted earlier, as the best theologian. His response was brilliant. He said, best is not a theological category. Faithful is. And I thought about this. Best is an economic term. It is about maximization. It is about optimality. It's about efficiency. Faithful is something else. Now, doing what is faithful oftentimes coheres with doing what is best. But sometimes doing what is faithful is suboptimal, and it's non-maximizing, and it's inconvenient, and it's inefficient, because it is oriented and it's anchored to a different reality. It is oriented to an enchanted world. Ordered, humanizing love, ordered affections, virtue. Service to others, Edification to the community and common good and glory to God. And finally, holiness and a heavenly fitness. This is organizing our activity around an alternative story, the story of the enchanted world, the story of being created by a deliberate creator and inhabiting a created order. May our economic activity, our industriousness, our business be cut from the cloth of this story. May it be animated by and motivated within this story. Seek the things that are above where Christ is.